Good morning. You guys doing well? You guys laugh at that every time we show it, don't you? It's just a, it is kind of funny, isn't it? It's a lot of fun. Uh, this is our relationships teaching series, A Mess Worth Making. Did you notice the mess at the end of that, that crash and burn scene? Yeah, no doubt. A mess worth making. And so thus far in this series, we've looked at conflict and then conflict resolution and then last weekend boundaries. And you can listen to any of those if you just download our DB app either on Android or Apple and feel free to listen to the, all those. And, but this morning we're going to talk about communication. Now, I've been both fascinated and also frustrated with the, the differences between men and women, particularly in how we, <laughs> how we communicate. Uh, I didn't really understand that until I was uh, married for a while and I realized she talks a totally different than the way I do. You know, I, I can't figure her out. And, uh, and so there was a bit of fascination and frustration. So here's my question for you. Our, our, in fact, it was an uh, article that I came across. Maybe you've read this before. Are computers men or women? A language teacher was explaining to her class that in French, nouns unlike their English counterparts are grammatically uh, designated as masculine or feminine. One puzzled student asked, well, what gender is a computer? Teacher did not know, and the word was not in her French dictionary, so for fun, she split the class into two groups, appropriately enough, by gender, and asked them to decide whether computer should be a masculine or feminine noun. And both groups uh, were required to give four reasons for their recommendation. The men's group decided that the computer should definitely be the feminine gender, la computer, because, here, let me give you the four. This is what, uh, and I need a little support from the men here this morning, okay, if you, if, if you agree with this. So number one, they said, uh, computers are more like women, number one, because no one but their creator understands their internal logic. You guys agree with that? Huh? All you guys? Women are awfully quiet there. Number two, the native language they use to communicate with other computers is incomprehensible to everyone else. You didn't laugh as much on that one as you did there, but most of you that uh, deal with computers all the time, you know, you know. Number three, even this, oh, this is a good one. Even the smallest mistakes are stored in long-term memory for possible... <laughs> Wait a minute, I didn't even finish. <laughs> I didn't finish it, okay? Even the smallest mistakes are stored in long-term memory for possible later review. You guys know that's true. Every guy out there knows that's true. She brings that up and you go, I don't remember ever doing that. Well, you did it. You did it like a hundred times, okay? Okay, number four. As soon as you make a commitment to one, you find yourself spending half your paycheck on accessories for it. <laughs> now, the women's group, however, concluded that computers should be masculine. La computer. Because, number one, this is what women, the women said, in order to do anything with them, you have to turn them on. <laughs> That's messed up. Number two, they have a lot of data, but still can't think for themselves. So the women are really getting into that. I think the women sound more excited now than the men were. 
Number three, they're supposed to help you solve problems, but half the time, they are the problem. <laughs> number four, number four, as soon as you commit to one, you realize that if you had waited a little longer, you could have gotten a better model. <laughs> the women won. Need we say more? That's, I mean, that's what, to, that's what they said here. Women won. Okay, guys, we're messed up, okay? So there you have it. Take a look at your sermon notes there, part of the intro. So our uh, healthy people, healthy people create healthy relationships. So the key to healthy relationships is for you as an individual to become a healthy person. That's what we've been talking about throughout this series. And there has never been a healthy relationship without healthy communication. There's never been an unhealthy relationship that didn't get that way in, in part because of unhealthy communication. And so you can see where we're headed with this study here this morning on your notes. Uh, we're going to look at the power of our words, and then we're going to talk about really where those word problems come from, and then we'll end by giving you some words of, of wisdom of what healthy communication looks like. And so what I'd like for us to do, I want to pray uh, Psalm 139, 23, and 24, verses 23 and 24. They're right there on your notes. You can keep your eyes open. This is my prayer for us this morning as we embark upon this study on uh, communication. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the time we've had of, in worship through song and now as we worship you through Scripture and our understanding of Scripture. We pray that you would search us, O oh God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. We pray through the work and the power of your Holy Spirit, you would reveal truth to us and see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. For your glory in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Take a look at this. First of all, so our words have the power, here's your first two fill in the blanks, our words have the power of life and death. Proverbs 12, 18, it says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I prefer the NIV. That's the ESV. I like the NIV. Maybe it's because that's what I memorized it in. It says, Reckless words, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And you can withdraw the sword, but not the wound. And I'm curious here, how many have been wounded by someone's words and those words continue to haunt, hassle, and harass you to this very day? Show of hands. Show of hands. Yeah, many of us. Isn't that crazy? The power of words? I mean, some of the words that were spoken to me back when I was in grade school and they still can come after me. Now, here's your cure. The cure to those negative words are to have the words of your Father in heaven resonate deep within your heart that you are my child, you are my beloved child, you are my beloved daughter, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. That's almost like the trump card that cancels out everything else. And you desperately need to hear that, even as we are going through this study here this morning, that you have a Father in heaven who, who loves you and adores you, and he sent his son to die for you. So it's pretty amazing when you begin to understand that. that. That discounts those other negative words as you begin to see how much he loves you and values you. And as I've said in this series, you've heard me say it many times before, why would someone 
have those kind of reckless words that would pierce deep within our souls because hurt people, you can finish the sentence, yeah, hurt people do what? Hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. Healed people, heal people. Healed people, heal people. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. When people are rude and unkind, they're screaming out to the world. I'm in pain. I'm miserable. So when you hear people with, with this reckless words, that's what's going on. They're hurt. They're crying out deep within them. The people that are healed will bring words of healing and comfort and security and strength. Here's another verse. Let's read this verse together and aloud. It should be up on the screen there. You guys ready? Let's read it together nice and loud. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. It's fascinating, isn't it? So death and life, that's a powerful verse. Not only do our words, can our words wound others, but it's literally saying death and life are in the power of the tongue. So through what we say, we can either bring life or death. And notice it says, those who love it will eat its fruits. It's speaking both. It has power over both the speaker and the hearer. So the words that you even speak have an impact on your life. They reinforce your feelings and, and your thoughts. And so as you're doing the same in, in someone else's life and in their soul. Driving a car is a, is a life or death thing which requires a license. Owning a gun is a life or death thing and it requires a license. There is a force more powerful than cars and guns and it means life or death, not just to the body but to the soul and every human being is issued one, it's called the mouth. Now, I was thinking about this. Wouldn't it be interesting if we required people to have a license to operate their mouth, okay? Wouldn't that be interesting? How many are for that? Okay. And, and you had to take a test every couple of years to demonstrate your competence. And wouldn't it be interesting if we had a department, a department of motor mouths? that would monitor our speech and if you flunked the test you lose your license and have to have a designated talker. <laughs> Some of us would require a designated talker, wouldn't we? Yeah, but I, I don't know that we understand the power that's in the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. With our words we can crush someone's spirit. Think about that. With our words, we can crush someone's spirit. We can pour cold water on someone's dream. We can set someone up for a life of resentment and low self-esteem. We can feed someone's fear and drive them to depression and maybe, maybe even to suicide. I mean, you, you've seen the news. You've seen here within the last, even within the last decade, people who were driven to suicide because of the exchange of words on Facebook. People killed themselves because of that. I've, as a medic, I, I went on calls where people were devastated by the words of someone else and they tried to commit suicide. 
And on the other hand, when we say the right word at the right time, we can give love to someone who's feeling alone. Pretty amazing. We can bring comfort to them. We can give hope to someone who feels like giving up. I mean, how many times I've, sometimes I just felt like, ah, I don't know if I can go on, and then the words of a, of a friend or a loved one speak life. It's almost like they breathe life into me. It's like, okay, yes, yes. We can give direction and wisdom to someone who is confused. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Now, we've got to get down to the root of this. And as you guys know, we don't skim the surface here. We kind of dive deep. We're going to dive really deep here because we've got to ask the question, where do these word problems come from? It's your next two fill-in-the-blanks. Our word problems are heart problems. Our word problems are heart problems. And what I'm about to share with you has been revolutionary for me. I, for a number of years, couldn't figure out, why am I not changing? Why is my life not being transformed? Why do I keep going around the same mountain over and over again, the same problem? My wife and I had the same problems over and over and over again. And I began to understand it really came down to I was doing more behavioral modification. It was more self-help and how-to. It was less, you know, it was less about me understanding my heart and experiencing the transformation that God wanted to do in my heart. And that's what I'm going to share with you here. In Luke 6, 43 through 45, Jesus is talking here. He says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor good, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. That makes sense. That's logical. For each tree, and he's going to go into it in a little more detail, for each tree is known by its own fruit. So it's really talking about the root determines the fruit. So you've got to look at the root system for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, and this is really key, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Some translations actually say that which uh, you have stored up in your heart. You're storing, we're all storing something up in our heart. We're, we're treasuring something in our heart. Even right now, you're treasuring. There's something that you're treasuring in your heart. 24-7, you're treasuring something in your heart. You're, you're also storing up something within your heart. And out of that is the, is the overflow of, of good. So the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. And this is a key. For out of the abundance, so the overflow of the heart, his mouth speaks. So, so when we say something, that's coming out of the overflow of your mouth. Now, there's a couple other verses you can write down also. It's Proverbs 4.23. 423 of Proverbs and then Matthew 621. Let me recite those verses for you because they kind of help us to understand this whole idea. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so, Proverbs 423, we, we studied this a little bit in more detail last weekend that it says, above all else, I mean, that's a pretty serious, severe statement. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. And then 621, it tells us in, uh, in Matthew 621, it says, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Now, we need to define heart because the word heart is used some 900 times in the Bible. So it's a really, really important word. And uh, the word heart means your core commitments, the things you most fundamentally trust, love, and are living for and are hoping in. 
So that's what's at the core of your heart. Now, what's crazy about this is that you can actually say, I'm committed to Jesus, and yet not be committed to him. You can, in word or in, in kind of name, but truly in your heart, if you were to take a look deep in your heart, no, that's not really your core commitment. And, and we're going to see that in, in just a moment as we kind of unpack these notes and look at some ways that we can see that within our own lives. Whatever you treasure the most, whatever you treasure the most will fill your heart and whatever fills your heart controls your life. It controls your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions. That's why we practice spiritual disciplines. I hope that's why you're here today. There's a spiritual discipline coming in church because you're wanting to, to fill your mind with the beauty and the value of Christ. You want him to dominate your thoughts, stir your deepest emotions, and move you to action. And you want your life to be filled up with God. That's why we do spiritual disciplines because the, the battleground is for our core commitments. What are we going to be committed to? What are we going to live for? Where are we going to put our trust, our hope, our deepest love? Where are we going to place that? Your heart is the control center of your entire acting self. In fact, if you want to find out where your core commitments are and what's most important to you, just look at your daydreams. Now, most of us don't even know what we daydream. It's just because our minds just automatically go there. But when I begin to be more conscientious of where my mind goes... Oh my goodness, I was frightened by where, what dominated my thoughts. And when you look at your daydreams, they will tell you what you are living for and who you really are. Now, think about this just for a minute, and I, I've taught you this many times before. It's your evaluation of the events of life that determine how you feel about those events and how you're going to behave in response to those events. It's not the events. It's what you're telling yourself about those events. And what you're telling yourself about those events has to do with your core commitments. It's what you are fundamentally hoping in, trusting in, loving with all of your heart. And so that's going to make a difference in how you feel and how you behave in response to those events. So what we have to do is we got to look at, well, how am I evaluating this? Where's your heart? If you want to change your, your feelings and change your behavior in response to the events of life, you have to change your core commitments. You have to change, change your heart because it's your evaluation of the events. It's your heart and what you're, what you're telling yourself and what's most important to you about the events in life that determine how you feel and will respond to those events. Now, let's go through this list because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so here's the next fill in the blank on your notes. A harsh words, so when you have harsh words coming out of your mouth, they come from an angry heart. Just makes sense, doesn't it? So I've got an angry heart when I have these harsh words. And then negative words are coming from a fearful heart. If I'm just kind of looking on the downside of life, and ah, I don't know if I'm going to get through this, and ah, ah. Now, sometimes we don't actually verbalize those things because we know that people will, will either shut us down or they'll try to correct it or whatever. But sometimes if you just listen to yourself talk, we all talk to ourselves. And in fact, you're talking to yourself right now faster than I can even talk, okay? So I can't even keep up with your self-talk. Your self-talk is going really rapidly. And, uh, and so you, if you start listening to your self-talk, you listen to what you're saying to yourself, those thoughts. 
So there's, there's harsh words come from an angry heart. Negative words come from a fearful heart. Overactive words come from an unsettled heart. Sometimes I'm a motor mouth. I mean, I'm just like... And some, some of you are a motor mouth sometimes. I've been around you. And, and that comes from an unsettled heart. There's an unsettling in your heart. You're just kind of dominating the conversation and you're trying to control what's going on around you. And ah, ah. Boasting words come from an insecure heart when you hear someone boasting about themselves. And then uh, boasting words come from an insecure heart. Filthy words come from an impure heart. So when you have, you know, if you, you know, you, you've been around people before and all of a sudden there's these little innuendos and these little things that they say and you go, whoa. They, they take you into kind of an impure thought. Well, that's coming from, an, you know, an impure heart. And then critical words come from a bitter heart. So when we listen to our words, our words are a wonderful way to identify what's going on in my heart. Besides, besides my daydreams, I listen to the conversation that's going on inside of me and the conversation that's coming out of me and how I respond to the events of life. It's telling me something about my life. It's telling me what's my core commitments, what's most important to me. Now, negative emotions, so angry heart, fearful heart, unsettled heart, insecure heart, impure heart, bitter heart, negative emotions come from desires, core commitments, things that I've put my trust in, desires that are threatened, blocked, or lost that are being threatened, blocked, or lost. You need to track with me here just for a moment. I'm going to kind of walk you through a process of as you kind of evaluate your heart to find out what's going on here. How do I work through this? This is kind of psychology 101, if you might say, from God's word. It's really very helpful, and it was revolutionary for me a number of years ago as I began to work through this in my own life. So negative emotions come from desires that are threatened, blocked, or lost. When desires become demands... So when these desires, these core commitments, and your core commitment could be your family, which is a good thing, but if it becomes an ultimate thing, as we're going to talk about in a minute, it really gets a hold of your life. And so when these desires become demands, negative emotions are increased substantially. So when a good thing, a desire, these things that you are at the core of your being, you're committed to things that are most fundamentally your trust, love, you're living for, you're hoping in... So when these desires become an ultimate thing, these good things become an ultimate thing, they go from desire to demand, it increases your emotional response, your feelings to when those things that are most important to you are being threatened, blocked, or lost. For instance, let me kind of walk you through this process. Let's just say, okay, it's good to have a job, you want a job. Let's just say that you are... uh, uh, You've had the job for 15 years, maybe 20 years. You're really looking forward to retirement. It's a good thing. And, and, and all of a sudden, because of the economy, because of competition with the company you work for, with other companies in that same field, you hear of layoffs. The rumor just goes through your organization. Oh, my goodness, layoffs. And there's an anxiety that hits you. You're just like, oh, my goodness. I, I thought I had some security here, but I, evidently I don't. Now, it's normal to have a level of anxiety if you're having a good thing being threatened. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's consolable because you realize, hey, wait a minute, my security's not in this job, it's in Christ, and I need to blow the dust off of my resume and maybe kind of start thinking about putting it out there. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing and it's being threatened, you're not just going to be anxious, you're going to be paranoid. You're going to be overwhelmed by fear. You're going to have sleepless nights because you've misplaced your identity. Your core commitment, your core trust is that job. Your core love might be that job. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? Let's take it a little bit deeper than that. Let's just say that uh, you were really looking for a promotion. You went to, to all the classes. You studied. You did all the things that were necessary. Man, you've had a great record, work record. And lo and behold, the supervisor promotes promotes his son-in-law, who's a lug nut, okay? He's just a, I mean, and, and, you, and you're like, what in the world? This kid is no comparison to me. And so would you guys think it would be normal to be angry? Yeah, it's normal. But you're not going to be inconsolable in that anger. You're going to be able to work through it because you know, that, because your trust is in God. You, you realize God's in control. He loves you. He's going to take care of you. He has a reason behind this. You're going to work through that. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing in your life, that desire has become a demand that you can't live without, you're not just going to be angry. You're going to be bitter. And it will poison your life. It will destroy you. You guys tracking with me? You understand what I'm saying? That's pretty important. I mean, by the way, it's not just a job. It could be your kids. It could be having kids. I just want to have, we want to have children. We can't have children. Or having children. It could be having children. And now that you have children, it's how your children behave, okay? And that's another problem. Or, you know, it could be any number of things. How your children turn out. They could be mad and angry. We raised them right and look at them. You become bitter. Begin to lash out at them. Let me give you one more, third one here. And this is the, uh, let's just say that you lose your job or your child goes south or you have a fire in your home and you lose your home, you have no insurance. And, you, and that was, it's a good desire to have any of those. But that desire has become a demand. That good thing has become an ultimate thing. So you've lost it, it's gone. And uh, it would be normal to be sad. And you'll be consolable because your hope is in Christ ultimately. You'll get through that and you become a better person as a result of it because you know that God is working everything for your good and his glory. And so you trust him in that. And sure enough, better days are ahead because you trust him and he's going to take care of you. And so sadness would be normal. You're going to work through that. You're going to go through the grieving process and that's good. But if that good thing has become an ultimate thing, you're not going to be just sad. You're going to be depressed and you might not ever get out of that hole. And in fact, you might even be suicidal. One of the calls that I went on when I was on the fire department was a guy who had lost his job and was right real close to his retirement and he was of the age where he was almost kind of too old in some regards to even try to find another job and the economy was down and he really worked hard, tried to find another job and he couldn't find a job and he was depressed for six months to a year and he tried to kill himself. He took a razor blade and tried to cut his throat open. Because his depression, because he had put all of his eggs in that basket his job, his work. It was his core commitment. And it let him down. Now listen to me. If you build your life on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, inevitably it will let you down. It will let you down. For your own sake, for your own sanity, put your hope in Jesus. 
Make him the, your core commitment. I do that just for my, my own sanity. I know that everything else is going to let me down in life. My marriage, my kids, this church, everything. My hope is in Christ. That's why I love the songs that we sang. That those songs were just to reinforce to us. Yes, he's the love of my life. He's the one I trust. He's my hope. See, and that's, that's what we need. And that's why we come to churches, to have that reinforced. See, this isn't like some superficial skim in the surface, behavioral modification, try hard, come on, you can do it. No, 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 that won't get you anywhere. It's put your hope in Jesus. Come to know him. Give your life to him. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. It's all about knowing him. What I just shared with you was revolutionary for me. I've never been the same as a result of that. And so when I, when I spend time with him in his word and in prayer and, and I hang out with other Christians, man, I'm just, just building up equity with the fact that he's my core commitment. He's the one that will never let me down. He's the one I trust in. And so then I begin to evaluate all the events in life in light of he's for me and not against me. He's going to see me through this. And then I'm going to respond to life differently. I'm not going to have these harsh words that come from an angry heart or negative words that come from a fearful heart. That eliminates the angry, fearful, unsettled, insecure, impure, bitter heart. But when that begins to happen, I realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm putting too much hope in this. That's good, but God, you're better. You're the one I put my hope in. So even in the midst of when I find my heart being drawn away, I, I do that course correction. It's called repentance. We, we repent. And it goes back to even like the prayer that we started off with. Search us, O God, and know our heart. Try us. Know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, bring my heart back to you. Help me to know you. Help me to experience you deep in my heart. Now, next verse on your notes, Proverbs 16.23. It says, The heart of the wise... So we gave you all these other kinds of hearts, angry heart, fearful heart, unsettled heart, insecure heart, impure heart, bitter heart. Now he's talking about the heart of the wise. Makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. And so you, so you got this idea that so now what you have coming out of his mouth are, are, is a speech that is judicious, which means uh, careful, prudent, and well thought out. And adds persuasiveness to his lips. Persuasiveness means it's captivating, it's contagious. So the heart of the wise, the wise heart, does that. So how can I have a wise, wise heart? Proverbs 9.10. This is really, really important to understand this. Most important part of what we're talking about here. It says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if I want to have some wisdom in my life, it begins. This is the beginning. It begins with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What is fear? What is fear of the Lord? Real quick, I want you to do this. I want you to turn to the folks sitting around you. Let's discuss this a little bit. It's really important you get this deep into your heart. The fear of the Lord, because it's throughout the scripture. And it's critical. By the way, if you fear God, if you fear God like he's talking about here, you will fear nothing or no one. There's no events in life. There's no circumstances. There's no people that you will, you will fear because you have the fear of the Lord. But what is the fear of the Lord? Turn to the folks sitting next to you and see if they know what the fear of the Lord is real quick. 
Okay, you guys coming up with some good, uh, good definitions? You guys think you might know what the fear of the Lord is? Does, is? Is the fear of the Lord being afraid of God? No. No, okay. No, it's not being afraid of him. And yet, it's, it's an awe and wonder, an awe and wonder of the Lord. Notice he also uses, and the knowledge. This knowledge is, it speaks of intimacy. So awe and wonder and intimacy of the Holy One. Intimacy. What is Intimacy. This is a hard experience based on the objective truth of who Jesus is, who God is. Intimacy is into me you see. Into God I see. There's a, there's a, a, a level of, of seeing, discernment. There's an intimacy. Into me he sees. He sees me to the depths of my being and he, love, and he loves me to the heavens. He knows every detail about me and he loves me. And I'm beginning to, to see him more clearly and enter into this relationship with him. And so the word wisdom means seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. So it would mean evaluating the events in life from the perspective that the creator of the universe loves me, adores me, and gave his life for me. It is a transforming, joyful this idea of the fear of the Lord, a transforming joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that ruins you for anything else. Does that make sense? I mean, you're wrecked. You get love from him that your spouse could never give to you, and it just makes you a better spouse. You get a satisfaction in him that your job or your kids could never give to you. It makes you a better, better uh, person on the job, a better, better parent. Because you have such a contentment in him. And, uh, and, and by the way, you can't experience this unless you're a believer in Jesus. Unless you're born again. And, you, and you're born again by grace through faith by grace through faith in Jesus. You acknowledge your sins separate you from God. You believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and you confess him as Savior and Lord and you begin to seek him with all of your heart and he becomes your core commitment. The, the person you are most fundamentally, you most fundamentally trust, love, and are living for and hoping in. And that's the Christian life. It's not where you just add God to your life somehow and he's gonna make your life better among other things that you add to your life. No, he is the focused, he's, he's the focus of your life. He's the central person of your life. You begin to live for him and for his glory. You're overwhelmed by who he is and, and what, he's, what he's doing in your life. You begin to daydream about God, believe it or not. You begin to daydream about God when you realize that he is more deeply desirable, more soul-satisfying, more life-liberating than anything in this world. We, uh, Nancy and I had a chance to go out with some friends uh, up to Sedona on their, uh, some razors. I didn't even know what a razor was. I thought a razor was something you shaved with. And uh, about a year or so ago, I found out razors are like these four-wheel drive vehicles that you can go anywhere with because we kind of went anywhere. We went on the back roads of... Uh, of Sedona, and if it's been a while since you've been to Sedona, oh my goodness, what an amazing place, what a beautiful place, the mountains, the red rock. So we, you know, are you guys familiar with the pink Jeep tours? We were all over that and more, okay? 
We went all over the place, back in the back roads and looking at stuff and went down into Oak Creek and then, oh my goodness, it was just amazing. And here's what occurred to me as we were out there is, uh, is with Psalm 8. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place. He said, I mean, looking at creation, when you look at creation, it's breathtaking. And then he goes, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care about him? Oh my goodness. This is glorious. This is beautiful. This is breathtaking. And if you created this, then you're glorious and beautiful and even more breathtaking because this is a gift from you and ultimately a pointer back to you. It was kind of a God experience. Just like, oh, wow. There was a, here's a quote on the fear of God. The fear of God is not just some general belief in God, but it is to be filled with joyful awe before his magnificence, his glory, his beauty, that you tremble at the privilege of knowing him, serving him, and pleasing him. See, sin shrugs at God. It's not failure to believe he exists, but that he matters. And God begins to matter more than anything in your life. And then you begin to evaluate all of life through that. There's, a, there's some verses that I was meditating on this last week. And it's, uh, oh my goodness, as I was reading through these verses, I had, I had these moments of just being overwhelmed with, with God's goodness and his presence and his love. Ephesians 3.16, I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power in your inner being by his Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and I pray that you being rooted and established in his love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then I wrote, wrote this down on this card. And I'll, I, I do this on cards. I'll put it in my pocket. I'll carry it around with me and I'll, so I can meditate on it. And I put this, nothing will make you emotionally strong in the face of criticism, suffering, and death like being rooted and established in Christ's love. That's part of this, this idea of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Now let me give you some words of wisdom. That what I just said to you is the most important thing. If you've never come to faith in Jesus, man, I, I hope today you do that. You put your faith in Jesus. You, you acknowledge your sin. You believe that he died on the cross for your sin. You confess him as Savior. And you go for him. You make him the, the passion, the pursuit of your life. He's the one you begin to treasure unlike anything before. Now, words of wisdom, this is from James chapter 3. If you're familiar with James chapter 3, the first 12 verses talks about how to tame the tongue. How to tame your tongue. Basically what I just shared with you. But then he kind of wraps up the chapter. Let me read the last part of the chapter. James 3, 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So, he, I mean, he's cutting to the chase. He's getting right to the heart. He's just showing us, you know, where our harsh words and our negative words and our overactive words are coming from angry, fearful, and settled hearts. But the key verse is verse 17. We're going to dissect this, this verse. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial 
and sincere, verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I like the New Living Translation. It puts it this way. And those who are peacemakers, that's verse 18, and those who are peacemakers, you will be a peacemaker. Those who fear God are going to have these characteristics. They're going to be wise people who have these characteristics in their life, and they're going to be peacemakers who plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So, so every day in every relationship, you are planting seeds, and you will reap what you sow. You're planting seeds of love or hatred, joy or, or hopelessness, peace or war, patience or anxiety and stress. Not just in your relationships, but, but in your in your person, who you are as it relates to your relationship with God. You're saying something to yourself, that self-talk. Now, next week we're going to deal with how to deal with difficult people, the crazy makers in our lives, okay? But there's, this is an important point to that. In any relationship, half the problem is how you respond to the problem. It's how you respond to the problem. And when you respond foolishly, unwisely to difficult people in your life or people in general in your life, you actually make it worse. So if, if I want to be wise with my words, if I have the fear of the Lord as my core commitment, number one, I won't compromise my honesty. So this is what I'm going to see in my life. A foundation of healthy relationships is honesty. Verse 17, wisdom from above is first pure. Speaking of trustworthiness and integrity. So here's my question for you. Are you a person of your word? Are you the same person in private as you are in public? Integrity builds trust and trust builds relationships. Trust can't be demanded. If I find someone doesn't trust me, you can't demand it. You have to ask, what can I do to regain that trust? I heard the story of a, a guy who was working at a uh, supermarket at a grocery store and a gal came up to him and, and wanted to buy a half of a rotisserie chicken. And he's like, I mean, he didn't say it, but he was thinking, oh, this is crazy. Just buy the whole thing, woman. And uh, so he's kind of thinking that. He says, well, I don't know. Let me go talk to my supervisor. So he walks back to his supervisor and he's saying, some crazy ignorant woman out here wants to buy a half of rotisserie chicken and, and his boss is standing there looking over his shoulder and, and goes, no, 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 kind of like, ah, ah. And he realizes the last minute that she's standing right behind him. She walked and followed him to the supervisor. And so as he says it, some crazy woman wants to buy a half of rotisserie chicken. He turned around and saw her and this beautiful, intelligent woman wants to buy the other half. And uh, <laughs> so he thought, he thought in the instant of time and said, corrected it. But the, the crazy thing is, is how many times have we been caught saying one thing to their face only to behind closed doors saying something else? Those people are idiots. And you know what? You don't even have to worry about whether they heard or not. What you need to be concerned about is that your father in heaven heard. And you need to learn to live for an audience of one. And that's what the fear of the Lord is. Is you realize, you know what? I'm going to be a person of integrity. I'm not going to say one thing to your face and then behind your back say something else. Because that just lacks integrity. Because I, because I have this fear of God. I know that he always watches over me and he loves me and that would dishonor him. Here's the next one. I won't antagonize your anger. 
Wisdom is peaceable. Wise people don't carry a chip on their shoulder. They aren't looking for a fight. Foolish people love to fight. I mean, just go on the internet. Are you a person who likes to push people's hot buttons? Do you have an axe to grind? I mean, that's, that's something you've got to look at. Number three, if I want to be wise with my words, I won't minimize your feelings. Wisdom is gentle. I'll never forget this. It was in the early days of our marriage. My wife came to me, and she goes, you're not spending enough time with me and the kids. And my response was not very good, okay? And so I go, what do you mean I'm not spending enough time with you and the kids? Well, like, Come on, what more do you want from me? We eat together, we sleep together, we watch TV together. Get off my back. And that helped, that helped the circumstance <laughs> tremendously. Praise God. That just stirred it up worse. My wife is so kind and patient with me, but, uh, but I, I begin to realize I need to look behind her words and see her feelings. And, uh, and my question for you is, are you thoughtful of the feelings of others? There's five levels of communication. There's cliche conversation. I talked about this, I think, last week. The sharing of facts and then opinions. So she was giving me her opinion and I gave her my opinion back, okay? And we didn't go anywhere with that. What I needed to do was take it to the deeper level of feelings and needs. I, I should have said, hey, what would make you feel that way? How can I do a better job at spending time with, you, with the kids, you and the kids? I thought I was, but evidently I'm not, and you're feeling really alienated. You're feeling kind of alone in this, aren't you? See, that would have been a, an appropriate way to kind of take it to a deeper level, a more meaningful level. And so, you got to take it to that deeper level of communication. I, I could have asked her, hey, what are your fears? What are your hurts? What are your frustrations? When someone says to you, I feel ugly, don't dismiss it by saying, well, you're not ugly. Or, I feel afraid, don't dismiss it by saying, well, why are you afraid? You don't have anything to be afraid of. But ask them, what would, why would you say that? What would make you say that? See, what you're doing is you're taking that conversation. Not, don't give them an opinion. Take it to a deeper level of communication of feelings and needs. Feelings are, are neither right or wrong. They just are. So don't belittle them by saying something like, well, that's dumb to feel that way. Or trying to play psychologist. Well, the reason you feel this way is because... But what they need more than anything is they need their feelings validated. Whether you agree with them or not, just saying, wow, sounds like you're having a tough time. What's going on? What's triggering that? What's happening here? Man, I love you. How can I support you? Number four, I won't criticize your perspective. Wisdom is open to reason. Um, this would mean that you're not stubborn or defensive. Man, in the early days of our marriage, I was so terribly defensive. She could not say anything to me. I would be defensive. It was just, just crazy. I was full of pride. I wasn't a good listener. Are you a good listener? Are you open to feedback? Are you teachable? The wiser you are, the better listener you will be. The more foolish you are, the less of a listener you will be. In fact, you're going to seek out counsel from others. Here's a, here's a good question you, you need to ask, husbands, to ask your wife. How am I doing as a husband? How can I do a better job? I want to be the best husband in the world. I want to be the best husband for you. I, wanna, I want you to know that I love you. How can I do this better? And wives, you can do the same thing with your husband. That's, that's, that's wisdom. That's just smart. 
And then number five, I won't emphasize your faults. Wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. Fools are judgmental, holier than thou, self-righteous. That's how I was in the early days of our marriage. And it can easily fall prey to that, even to this day. But wise people are merciful. I said this a couple weeks ago. Christians are the most loved, forgiven, reconciled people in this world. Therefore, we should be the most loving, forgiving, and reconciling people in this world. It just should be an overflow of our lives if we're living in the reality of that. And then number six, I won't disguise my intentions. This sounds almost similar to the first one. First one's more about integrity, who you are behind closed doors. There's a consistency between your private and public life. But this one is really more about sharing your, your feelings, your faults, your failures at that deeper level. Wisdom is impartial and sincere. I won't disguise my intentions. You are authentic, real, and genuine. There's no pretense, no mask wearing, no game playing. You're not trying to be someone you're not. Fools are fakes and wise people are authentic. And this is what I found in my own life. I mean, ever since Jesus saved me, I've had nothing to prove, nothing to lose. And that makes me that much more transparent and open with others. And that's, that's really important. Let me end by sharing with you a story, and uh, then we'll wrap it up. This is uh, from the book I've made reference to, Resolving Everyday Conflict by Ken Sandy. Listen to this story. I found it really quite interesting. I think it kind of ties all this together. Vicky was fired from her job for poor performance and for, a, uh, and for a habit of making snipping comments about her employer. Obviously, something going on deep in her heart. Uh, to her employer, Julia. She's making those snipping comments about her employer, Julia. When she came to me for advice about her termination, Vicky was threatening to file a lawsuit for wrongful discharge. We spent a long time talking and praying about how she could uh, please and honor God in the situation. As God worked in her heart, Vicki decided to go back to Julia and take responsibility for her contribution to the problem. When the two women met the next day, Julia was expecting Vicki to ask for a financial settlement to avoid a lawsuit. Instead, Vicki confessed her wrongs in detail admitted that she deserved to be fired and asked for forgiveness. Julia was so surprised that all she could do was mumble, uh, uh, sure. Vicky went on, I appreciate your forgiveness. She paused, then continued, I'd be happy to stop now, but if you would allow me to, I'd like to share a few things I have noticed where you may be contributing to the tensions with your staff and might help avoid problems with employees in the future. Vicky's offer was so sincere that Julia felt compelled to hear her out. And even though Vicky spoke respectfully, she noticed Julia's eyes began to fill with tears. And Vicky paused. I- I'm sorry, she said. I, I guess I-, I should stop. No, you don't understand, Julia replied. You haven't hurt me. It's just that as you were talking, I realized that you're the first person I can remember who ever cared enough to talk to me like this. With that encouragement, Vicki finished what she had planned to say, still speaking with respect, and although Julia didn't agree with all of her observations, she was so grateful for Vicki's concern that she was able to receive her advice without offense, and by God's grace, the two women parted in peace. Perfect example of what we're talking about here. Pretty amazing. Now, we're going to pray in just a moment, and here's what I'm going to, I encourage you uh, to do. I forgot to bring them up here with me. Do you guys have one of those cards that are in your bulletin? Let me have that. Thank you. 
You guys have this in your bulletin, and on your way out, I would ask you to take a pack of cards. Some of you have already been picking up these cards. We got Easter right around the corner, and we will indeed pack this place out. We always do every Easter, and so you're going to help us do that, but what we've asked you to do is to invite your family and friends. Did you know that most people who are unchurched will come to church on Easter weekend if they're only asked? That's all you need to do. This is a great invitation. By the way, they get a free drink when they come in here, and that's a great incentive to have them hang out with us on a Sunday because we have some great drinks over there. Oh, baby, I love it. But, uh, but uh, think about that. Think about the people that God would uh, have you invite on Easter weekend so that they can come and hear the amazing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and have their lives changed as our lives are being changed through the gospel. Think about that. Next weekend, we're gonna talk about dealing with difficult people. <laughs> crazy makers in our life. Anybody have crazy makers in their life? Don't point them out in here. Okay, yeah. Were you raising your hand because you are the crazy maker or you, you know crazy makers? Here's how we're going to pray. Look at Psalm 1914. Here's our prayer this morning. You keep your eyes open. Just kind of look at this verse. Let's pray these words. So God, what a great time we've had in your presence, studying your word, worshiping you through song and through scripture. So let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts. May you dominate our solitude. May we daydream about you, God, and how you love us and satisfy the deepest longings of our souls. May the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. <laughs>